and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. I'm so excited for today's guest. Mario Romero is somebody who you may not know of, but his story is going to move you, and it's going to inspire you, and it's just going to make you think, because Mario is a very thoughtful guy. I got connected to Mario from our previous guests, Kyle Maynard and Jeff Gum, and they told me as soon as we wrapped our interview that, hey, Brian, you got to go talk with Mario. He's a fascinating guy. He's a thoughtful guy. And most importantly, he's an intentional guy. And Mario is going to share his story with us today. And it is quite a story. It starts with very humble beginnings and transitions into the Navy SEALs. And Today, Mario is at Columbia University, where he's studying to become an astronaut. Yes, that's right, an astronaut. So Mario is certainly a dreamer, and based on the information you're going to hear in this conversation, there's no reason for us to believe that he's not going to achieve his dreams. If you want to bet against him, go ahead. I certainly am not going to choose that path. This guy lives intentionally. He's thoughtful, he's an action-oriented human, and he has tools and techniques to get him from where he is to where he wants to go. So there's so much to learn from this conversation, and there's so many questions that hopefully you will have and curiosity that you will have upon the completion of this conversation. And I think that's really the sign of a great talk, is do we leave with more questions than answers? And certainly Mario is a questioner, and he is somebody who has had to get in line and follow orders. And he is also somebody who has learned to think against the grain. So there's so much depth in this conversation. I know you'll love it. And so without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Mario Romero. Mario, thank you for joining me on the podcast. We met through mutual friends, Jeff Gum and Kyle Maynard. Uh, After they came on the podcast, I said to them, hey, who else should I chat with? And they were like, you got to get with Mario. So uh, I was, I had a really good time learning a little bit about your story. Uh, gosh, a couple of months back and uh, sort of 
I was blown away by by your journey. So I'm I want to share that with other people and people in my community because I know that they're going to benefit from this conversation as well. Um, I think where I'd love to start with you is to get a sense of your childhood and your upbringing because I know that it was not necessarily a common childhood and upbringing. So give us some color, uh, give us some insight into what life was like for you as a kid. Yeah, awesome. Well, first of all, thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. I'm stoked and. Uh... Uh, we definitely had a good time chatting over uh, over beers a few months back, but um, so yeah, as a child, I was I was uh, I know you often hear stories about you know children bereft of many things and influences and 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 uh, role models and whatnot. Um, so I, that was kind of the same situation I was in. I grew up uh, in Section Eight housing. There was three of us kids and just my mother who was supporting us, and uh, she had to work several jobs. So, uh, you know, uh, there were times where I barely got to see her and, uh, I essentially was raised by a brother and an older sister. Are you um, the youngest of the three? I am. Yes. Uh, and what's the youngest the, of, yeah. What's the age difference between the three of you? So I have a brother who's three years older than me and I have a sister who's about 10 years older than me. Um, uh, fortunately those, they're both really good people and, uh, did, did real well to look after me. Um, so yeah, my, my mother, you know, she kind of, she kicked ass for sure. She, she did what she could to, uh, to provide for us and, and, you know, always wanted the best for us. And, and unfortunately we were raised in that, um, in that environment, uh, that didn't necessarily produce a lot of, uh, role models if, if you understand. Um, but, um, by the time I was around eight, nine years old, we had finally moved out of there, uh, uh, mind you, there were bouts in between where, where my mother and I, we had to pretty much live in motel rooms. Um, but, um, the, we finally moved out there, moved into a house, things got a little bit better. Um, and yeah, I started, you know, I started really paying attention to a lot of things my brother liked to do, which, which I kind of just mimicked his, his, uh, his interests and likes and, and that kind of steered me or, or guided me in the right in the right direction. Another, another, I mean, I'm going to say it's an unfortunate, uh, unfortunate thing is I, I was sort of raised in the Jehovah's witness religion, which is a, um, which is kind of a, it's got some cultish behaviors where, where you're not necessarily allowed to consider people outside of the religion as friends. They're there to be known as like worldly associates. So it's this really odd kind of, kind of community. But, um, I had, I had always felt like kind of an outcast, you know, and I, and I was, I, I was an outcast. I was the, that weird kid who was in that weird religion. Um, but yeah, that was, that was pretty much it for my childhood. And then, you know, and, growing up and, and Mario, sorry, where did you grow up? Where, where was this all taking place? Oh, this was down in South Jersey in a, in a city called Vineland, New Jersey. So outside um, Philadelphia. Yeah. It's like maybe 20, 30 minutes outside of Philly. And dad, no idea who he is, or was he just not around? Yeah, he he's he was not around as around. Uh, my father, my father shares a, a kind of a an unfortunate story. You know, he he was in a way abandoned by his parents, and he's always been sort of this wanderer in our life, in our lives. Um, to which we are extremely grateful. He's he does the best that he can with with what he has. You know, we are extremely grateful for him. He's a great guy. Uh, he just wasn't necessarily around. Um, he, he operates with how he knows in life. And that was, you know, having been left and, and kind of wandering around. Um, so, but yeah, you have I, Mario, you have, you have amazing perspective on that. 
what was it like for you as a 10 year old, you know, watching mom, uh, work three jobs, uh, have to sort of move around a little bit. Um, what was your perspective on dad back then? You know, I, I, I didn't know otherwise, you know, cause when I did see my father and, um, I hung out with him, everything was fine. So that's the life that I knew, you know, I, I didn't know another life. I didn't have the perspective of another life to, to be able to judge whether or not this was bad or, or good. This was just the way it was for me. And I, you know, I didn't mind. I'm glad he was there. And as I get older, I see, and I have more appreciation and gratitude for that fact. You know, there's people who don't know their fathers or never had their fathers or abused by their fathers or whatever. And that wasn't me, you know, so I'm grateful for what I do, what I do have. And the religion side of things, uh, how much did that impact how you saw the world? You, you said you were an outsider compared to maybe the kids that you went to school with and they looked at you as sort of weird or different or whatever it might have been. How did the religion help shape who you are today, if it did at all? Um, yeah, the, uh, let me just, let me just pause this or mute this computer. The, uh, the religion, it, you know, it, when you're in one of those religions, you tend to believe what, what you're being told by these adults and, and, you know, these seemingly wise elders who, who are trying to guide you, you know, you, you, you just tend to fall in line. So I believed them, you know, I went along with it for a while. Um, and then, you know, as I started getting older and older, it, it just seemed so unfair. In fact, there was a, there was a real funny and kind of a sad story of when I was in, I think elementary school. And I was just so fed up of having been left out and having been ostracized because of that religion that the school had been putting on a play singing Frosty the Snowman and Oh Christmas Tree. And instead of like getting on the school bus and going home after school, I rebelled and I just stayed and I participated in this, in this, uh, Christmas caroling, which was like, you know, forbidden, you're not supposed to participate. And, and, and still today, that's one of my many victory stories, you know, where I got one over, um, my brother finds that story kind of sad, but, and, and it is a little bit sad, but it's, it's also funny. But that's the first memory you have of saying, I'm going to do something that, you know, I want to do rather than something that I have to do. Yes. Yes. And, and it kind of, uh, you know, okay. So I, I, I can sit here and talk negatively about the Jehovah's witness religion a lot, but there is one thing that I will say because I tend to try to find or try to suss out the better parts of everything that I experience. And, uh, one of those things is the fact that as a Jehovah's witness, you don't celebrate Christmas. You don't celebrate birthdays. You don't celebrate these things. So, so as I got older and finally left the religion, by the time I was like 19, I got my first actual like Christmas gift and birthday gifts, you know? So this was later on in life, but w what it did teach me was that the most valuable gift you can share with another person is, is to share your time. If you find somebody, you know, um, if you find somebody worth, worth it, you would share your time with that person. Um, so I, I wasn't raised in a, in a sense to, to, expect gifts or, or I wasn't given gifts to unwrap before I could, you know, cognitively process what it was that I was doing where, you know, I don't want to sound like a, you know, like a hippie, but I wasn't raised this consumerist before I knew what I was doing, where I was to expect to open gifts all the, you know, certain times of year, which I really do appreciate because I find that sharing and spending time with others is the, is the most valuable thing you can give. And I, I don't know who could argue that. So and, and while we're on religion, um, 
we don't need to go too far into it, but you do have, I'm looking at you and you've got tattoos up and down your shoulder and your arm. And it looks like there are crosses on your shoulder. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but where, how do you think about religion now as I'm looking oh, at your so, tattoos? So this is a comic book. This is okay. not, it's not entirely like, <laughs> It's zombies. I have a bunch of zombie tattoos. <laughs> okay. okay. And it's sort of like a Walking Dead theme. And there's like a cemetery with with crosses. Got it. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to re- religion, I uh, so I, I realize that my my ideas on it might not uh, jive too well with a lot of others. And, and I say that up front. I say that as a sort of disclaimer for what I'm about to say. But uh, the way I view religion is that it 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 goes its claims is that it itself can go deeper into that, which cannot be known in the first place. Meaning we, we have no real way of knowing whether or not a, a God itself exists. Um, and generally when, when people do say with absolute certainty that they know a God exists, they say so by using uh, fallacious arguments, arguments like circular logic or, or motivated reasoning, confirmation bias. You, you, you mix up the the you conflate the ideas of of what it means to be falsifiable evidence. What is faith means faith in the falsifiable versus the unfalsifiable. Um, so I think we haven't answered that question yet. But religion tends to not only say with absolute certainty that there is a God. It goes a step further and proclaims to know the mind of that God and what you should and should not do through perhaps a series of ancient texts and scriptures and and whatnot. So, so I don't, I don't necessarily buy it. I I realize I don't, it doesn't bother me that other people use it. You know, everyone derives their spiritual fulfillment from wherever they need to. And that's great. If that's, if that's the avenue you need to, to, to feel that, then, uh, you know, more power to you. That's great. How Um, do you think about, you use two words that I want to suss out a little bit, faith and spirituality. How do you think about those two words? Well, it depends on, on how you, use the word faith. I, I, I can say, yes, I have faith in, in the fact that you were going to, you know, you were going to call me at two o'clock today. Um, because that's built on trust on that's built on a, a falsifiable thing. You know, uh, what I'm not going to say is, uh, the faith that is built on the foundation of an unfalsifiable truth, something that can't be proven or disproven. That's the two different types of faith. And I think they're often, um, conflated in the argument of of faith based ideology um, and spirituality. You know, I, I I like the notion of spirituality. I, I find that I I I derive my own spiritual fulfillment from the understanding that we are, like Carl Sagan said, we are the universe looking back at itself when we are outside looking at the sky. You know, we are. You know, to me, thirteen point eight two billion years of cosmic and and up to human evolution is one of the most spiritually beautiful things that I can think about. Uh, we are sitting here, the, the, you know, the, the universe's best, you know, uh, particle of evolution of all these years of evolution. And here we are thinking we're a being that can think about itself and wonder we have theory of mind. We understand the, the reality of the, of our own mortality. You know, we understand this. we have compassion. But there's also a flip side to that. We there humans can also do very dark things. I'm also conscious of that that darker end too. Um, but yeah, like I said, where 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 people derive that spiritual fulfillment, that's fine with me. I I don't argue these things in public 
when, whenever anybody tells me they're religious, I'm like, that's great. You know, like they shouldn't expect to argue with me unless they really want to. <laughs> and then you get ready to go. And then I mean, I also mean like the academic sense of argument. I don't mean like, you know, petty, pity back and forth, you know, I, I mean an actual, like a debate sure. argumentation. All right. I want to go back to, to middle school, high school, those years. Um, because when we met, one of the things I was struck by is that you had this vision of yourself becoming a Navy SEAL at a young age. Um, what was that age and where did that come from? So going back to when I was a kid, because I, uh, I, uh, I actually depended a lot like many other kids on, on television and movies to, uh, to raise me, to help raise me. And one of the only VHS tapes that we had in my house contained like three movies on it. Uh, Predator. Uh, it was a dragnet movie. It was some other movie, cave girl. And it was psycho, like psycho <laughs> one of one or two and predator. I just, I just became infatuated with, with this movie. And I, I thought, you know, this movie is so cool. It's like these guys get to go around doing sneaky stuff. So one day I asked my brother, who are these guys? Like, what are these guys? And he said, I don't know. I think they're Navy seals or something. And I said, well, what do, what do seals do? And his response was something like, they just go to the beach and blow stuff up. And, and I said, oh, that sounds lame. I'm going to go be a Marine. Wow. Because I, I want to go do like whatever. And then it took a few years after that for me to realize, wait, okay, SEALs actually do more than just go to the beach and blow stuff up. So and, I had, I'm, and I'm just glad you didn't follow the psychopath and, uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and go down that route and hang out in showers somewhere, which and, could have happened. Which, <laughs> so you know. I think we're all better that you, you went the path that you went. So at that young age, you have it in your mind though, service or Arnold Schwarzenegger or yeah. that, I, that was it power? Was it, um, like what, what, can you look back and think about what, what was, I mean, obviously Arnold's got muscles out the wazoo and is, is slugging around these massive guns um and i have like a vision of what he's doing in that movie um but what do you think drew you to that at that point in your life i think it's inherent in just about every kid to want to be a at least every most boys to to want to be that sneaky frogman you know that that army combat i think it's inherent in in the male species in general that that fight or flight we i think we 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 try to investigate that in our very own natures. We go to fight clubs. We, you know, we, these are, these are aspects of humanity that are, that we can't escape. It's, it's very much a part of our animalistic nature. And for me, I think, uh, it, it just seemed so attractive to, to want to do that, you know, and, and to have that equipment and to go out and be able to be sneaky, you know, and, and as I grew up, I realized that it wasn't just that part. It was, it was, really a, a wantingness to go and work with the best and, and be surrounded by the best and, and take on some of these very challenging missions. And, and really, ideally, it was just to test myself to see what I was capable of as a human. And I think, and I'm hearkening back to high school. So were you, were you kind of continue to be an outsider as you get into high school, um, continue to be looked at as different? And, and what was the high school experience like for you academically, socially? I know you played sports, athletically. Uh, paint that picture for us a little bit. Yeah, sure. So by the time I got to high school, I was considered uh, an outsider, but only because it was on my terms. Um, I was like a punk rock kid. I had, uh, you know, a band, we played music, we, we would go on these, you know, punk rock tours, we would dye our hair blue, green, red, we'd get crazy haircuts. We, we were just like this, 
like Blink-182 wannabe, just punk, happy, fun punk kids uh, who were a bunch of skateboarders. Uh, and though we were kind of, by this point, we were accepted by everyone. We were also like, we, we throw, we, each of us, we thrived on, on just being different. So whereas we would see uh, people who would buy brand new clothing, every uh, clothes, every year for every school, we would try to spend, we would challenge ourselves not to spend any money or less than $3 on clothing. None of us would drink. None of us would smoke. We were the hardcore straight edgers. We just loved the idea of challenging ourselves. We would mark our hands up with the black X's, you know, to signify that we were like, we don't, uh, we don't like, I don't remember. We don't drink caffeinated beverages. We were just like these hardcore kids who wanted to, you know, be different. Why Um, do you think you were drawn to that? Because it's a challenge. You know, I've always been drawn to, 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 or I've always moved towards those difficult things in life and, and wanting to challenge myself. It's just uh, that where that comes from. I don't, I don't know. That's a, that could be an entire day's worth of podcast of trying to suss out the origins of that, of that, uh, uh philosophy. Yeah. And we're going to get more into it, but one of the things that just blew me away about your story is that you, that I think <laughs> You love going towards hard stuff. Like you, you, yes. you, that's like what is motivating for you is going towards challenges. When I think most people and, and including myself, like I think a lot of my life, I'm not drawn to challenge. I'm drawn to comfort or, um, pleasure or, um, connections or relationships. And that's not to say you aren't drawn to those things too. Yes. But, uh, as you, as you will tell your story, there's clear, lines that you are, are drawn to challenge. So what were some challenges that you faced in high school besides the social aspect? Um, well, you know, I'll be to, to, in the interest of full disclosure, I wasn't the greatest student, um, academically in, in, in high school. I was a rambunctious, high energy kid. So to me, the academics portion was not the, was not the important part. I, I, I cared about being around friends. I cared about, um, playing sports, honestly, sports was a a big deal for me in, in, in high school. And, you know, just like we're saying how, how I, I just happened to move towards those difficult things in life. I, I tried to find the, the difficult sports and I knew, you know, trying to prepare for, for the seals in the future, if that's what, you know, at that time I was still going towards seal, um, or I had, you know, my, my intention to go had only been fire, you know, buttressed even further. Um, well, I joined those, the, I saw like soccer and baseball and a lot of these sports were, were not hard enough for me. You know, they, they, they seemed a little too easy. So I knew the best. Were you good at those sports? Not, I mean, I didn't really participate too much. Instead, I moved towards like lacrosse, um, slightly, but mostly towards running and swimming. So I, I was like a, an athlete all year round in school. I I ran track, I ran cross country and I was a swimmer. And for each of these, when I joined these, um, sports, uh, I remember asking around like, which events are the most difficult of these? And I remember even actually telling my swim coach, I was like, I would like to swim. He, he sat me down. I was like, okay, so why do you want to join the swim team? I said, well, I want to be a seal, you know, like, and he, he looked at me, he, you know, he looked at me, gave me a straight face and he just shook his head and was like, okay, didn't make fun of me. Didn't laugh. Didn't say anything discouraging, which, which is still, you know, still with me today. How you, how you respond to, to, you know, some a person's legitimate, uh, uh, not just requests, but to, to their you know goals and, and wishes is, can have a huge impact. Um, 
so he said, okay, well, what event do you want to swim? What are you interested in swimming? And I said, well, I heard butterfly is the worst, is the hardest. And he looked at me and that's when he laughed. He was like, yes, it, it, it is the worst. So, or most difficult, I should say. So mind you, I, I should tell you that I had never swam a day in my life. I had never swam competitively. I didn't really know how to swim. When I showed up to the very first practice, I wore board shorts, no goggles. And I didn't know you were supposed to keep your face in the water. Like I didn't know any of this stuff. So when I dove into the, into the pool from the blocks, I was, I took about three strokes and I was hanging off the side of the wall, gasping for air. I had no idea what I was doing. My coach like looked at me and rolled his eyes and got his sister to come into the school and train me in my own lane by myself for like three months until I was able to slightly catch up with, you know, with the rest of the team. Would that describe your mindset? Uh, Hey, I'm just going to go for it and dive in. Whereas you've gotten older, are you more, um, neurotic or prepared when you dive in, when you dive into something? Or is that, is that sort of, do you have a history of saying, you know what, F it, I'm just going to dive, dive in head first and sink or swim and, and figure it out. Uh, I think I would say, well, there's a little bit of both. I mean, it would honestly depend on what it was, but it, it I would say for the most part, yeah, I'm just like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it because one of the things that scares me more than anything is, is, is not trying. Um, and I never want to be able to say that I didn't try. And that, that goes in terms of everything, anything in life. Like, like for example, when I applied to Harvard University, um, I didn't have the classes required. Uh, I, I needed like two classes to, to get into Harvard and I didn't have them satisfied yet, but I did have all the classes I needed required to get into Columbia, which I knew I was going to get into. I had a perfect GPA and everything, but um, I still applied to Harvard because I can say I did, I can say I did, you know, and that puts me on a level, on a level much greater or, or higher or beyond farther beyond anyone who didn't apply. Yeah. Uh, it's, I just, it's so interesting. Cause as you're saying that, I think I've, I've heard stats that like university of North Carolina, really good academic school, but also gets a lot of kids from in state. Um, they have so many applicants, so it's very, very hard to get in North Carolina. Um, Harvard, I don't know the stats behind this, but you know, Harvard also very hard to get into. But a lot of people, to your point, just don't even apply to Harvard because yeah. they know they have no chance. So why would I even apply? But for you, even though you knew that there's pretty much no chance based on the classes you had taken, I'm I'm still gonna go for it. So so that that is a part of sort of how you think about things. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, when I was at the when I was on the swim team, um after I had um after I had swam for a while. I actually, I actually was involved in the state swimming championship team. I, I had won a bunch of races my first year. Um, Wait, so time out. you go from not really swimming to winning a bunch of races pretty quickly. Yes. Yeah. And, and the, the interesting thing is that later on in a few years down the line, some of the, uh, some of the seniors that were with me that had been swimming their whole lives, uh, admitted to me in, in they admitted that they had a bet amongst themselves on how long it would take for me to quit because they would see these other guys who had never swam in their life try to join the swim team and they'd like flies, they'd drop, you know, and they just wouldn't take it. So I was the one that made like a lot of these people lose money. But they, I mean, it was cool by that time because it was like three years later and we're winning championships and whatnot. And uh, it was really just, just, accepting that it was going to be extremely challenging, extremely hard and, you know, keep going. 
swimming and cross country, I'm going to leave track out of it for now, but swimming and cross country in particular are what I call pain sports. So yeah. um, you get to a threshold and can you continue to go faster, even though your body's probably telling you not to. And they're also very monotonous. So there's not a whole lot of creativity. There's not passing a ball. There's not, um, there's some strategy, but it's not a whole lot of thinking, right? The goal is to let your body do the work and keep your mind out of it. Um, Do you think you were drawn to those sports because there was a formula for success or were you drawn to them? And when I say formula for success, it's like, hey, put in the work, keep going faster, push yourself, go harder, just put in the reps, put in the reps, put in the reps. Or was it that you knew that they were going to help you become a SEAL and you were just so focused on being Arnold Schwarzenegger that you were going to do whatever it takes to excel at that sport? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. Um, but I, I do have to disagree with one thing. I think you, uh, I think it's actually the opposite when you're, when you're working in a team sport or any other sport that involves a, a ball or passing the ball. And, and yeah, it does involve that creativity. I think, I think that's more reactionary. I think the, what the reason why I was drawn towards running and swimming distances and whatnot was because it was purely mental and, and it's, it builds your mental toughness unlike anything else. Whereas you can be distracted playing basketball here and there and you're you know it's it's by the minute by the second you could be passing the ball getting the ball you know your mind is always working when it comes to swimming or running you are fighting yourself you're fighting that and you you have to figure out a way to maintain that fuel that mental toughness throughout the entire duration of that race you can try to block your memory your your thoughts out but it's just not going to happen you're 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 going to feel every bit of that pain as opposed to like playing a, a ball sport where you can you know you can put that out of your mind for now because you have to get this ball passed over here. And you know, there's multiple things going on. Yeah. And and just to, just to clarify, I would, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I've worked with a lot of swimmers and a lot of runners. And what happens is the mind starts telling you, you can't do this or you, you know, you're not this. And they have to really rely on their training um, to try to quiet the mind and still do it. And the other part of it is you're on an Island. So there's no one to bail you out. There's no one to blame. There's really no excuses. Um, whereas in basketball or soccer, you know, Hey, they didn't pass me the ball. Like I couldn't do anything. We lost, but it wasn't my fault. Um, and, and I also think that the word mental, there's a lot that goes into mental, right? There's IQ. There's like, I, I separate mental toughness from mindset. So to me, mindset is like how we set our mind to get ourselves ready to perform. And then mental toughness is, well, what do I do when I hit the wall or what do I do um, when I'm struggling? Do I have the mental toughness? So um, we should probably probably clarify those words because we often just say it's all mental and it's often a not all mental because if you haven't physically trained, I don't care how mentally strong you are. uh, And and B, there's a technical part to everything, right? So if you didn't learn the technical aspects of swimming the butterfly – I don't, I don't care how hard you try. If you're learning the wrong way to do a butterfly, if you're, if you're putting your arms backwards rather than forwards, you're not going to be very good at the butterfly. So there's a technical piece to almost anything. Um, there's a physical, uh, and then mental. And then within each of those, there are elements as well. So, um, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I agree with you. Uh, and like other sports that are similar to that, uh, tennis is actually very similar in that it's, it's painful, but you're on an Island and you have to figure it out and you have to find a solution. Uh, wrestling. I work with wrestling. I know you you're in the MMA sort of jujitsu world. Like those are similar as well. And I, I also agree with you that it's not necessarily, 
interestingly, a lot of times people with ADD and ADHD are terrific swimmers um, yeah, because that is the space that they actually can find quiet. Uh, and that is a space where they can just throw their body in. I mean, Michael Phelps is probably one of the best examples of somebody who is a very creative guy and ADHD. And you just see him, you know, swim Usain Bolt as a runner and sprinter, like a very creative guy, very thoughtful guy. If you hear him talk, uh, and then like Floyd Mayweather, who's, who is a unique guy and, and in his own right. So, uh, we could go on and on Muhammad Ali. I mean, we, we can talk about those sports and go on and on, but yeah, I think, I think there's multi-layers to all of us as we hear the sirens uh, blazing in the background. Um, yeah, but yeah, New York City. So, so, uh, so, so you're swimming, you're running, uh, you dabbled in lacrosse a little bit. Uh, you said something earlier that I want to tug on a little bit. So it sounds like academically it wasn't easy for you uh, in high school, or uh, it, it, maybe easy isn't the right word, but how would you describe your academic experience in high school? Uh, and then walk us through what came next. Yeah. So when it came to academics, I, it's not that, I mean, I, I guess I should say that I just necessarily didn't put forth the effort. Um, I didn't know my interest did not lie in the academic realm. I wanted to do other things. I was like a, you know, just like I said earlier, I was a rambunctious kid who who had a lot of energy and, and didn't necessarily have the patience to, to, um, go forward with it. But I, I will say that, um, it, when it comes to, or in regards to a lot of these subjects we're taught as kids, I had allowed myself or convinced myself from an early age that I was not good at these subjects. So, so this is a, an impediment that kind of set a barrier towards my, uh, my learning throughout my entire high school, uh, middle school and high school career, you know, and then I, I attempted college right after high school, but I only did that because I had a scholarship for, for running. I was we, I ran over by Rowan and I, uh, I got sponsorship by Adidas and, and, um, yeah. And I had scholarships. So we, again, my, my academics was just not, not my, in the forefront of, of what I cared about. And so I must've graduated my GPA around, and I'll be honest, I don't know how they allowed me to graduate because I just don't remember doing much homework or any assignments or anything, but they did. Um, they, it had to be around a 1.7 or 1.8, 1.9. Couldn't be more. It definitely wasn't more than two. And uh, what I, I'm currently in the search right now for for that a transcript of my high school, so I can show, so I can post my GPA, so I can show people that you know these these limitations that we often you know impose on ourselves are in fact self imposed. And 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 here I am today to 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 show. That, that that's an actual that's the reality you know because here i am finishing this mathematics degree at, at columbia university and 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 that's a whole other story that we could uh yeah we could go down we're gonna dive into that uh before we do how old are you i'm 35 right now i just turned 35 so you're 35 which means 9 11 happens when you are 19- in high school yeah. yeah i was like 18 19 years old yeah how did that impact you and and on your on your path or uh, your, your journey. I was, I was greatly affected. You know, I, I, I didn't know I had always wanted to be a seal, but I didn't know that I wanted to necessarily like go out there and, and, you know, kill people and whatnot. I actually started leaning more towards doing a coast guard rescue swimmer for, for a brief window. Um, because that, at least in that, in that aspect, I could go and, and save lives or potentially save lives. Um, but then nine 11 happened and it kind of just redirected my course back towards, you know, 
back towards going and getting after it. I wanted to fight. And, and I remember sitting in my high school classroom in the days and weeks after and just kind of appalled that no one seemed shocked by this. You know, there was, and I'm from New Jersey, so there were firefighters and, and, you know, from my town that went up and there were, there were, uh, relatives of people in, in my hometown that lost their lives. Um, and I remember feeling just angered that, that it wasn't affecting others the way it affected me. Like they, that other people weren't angry. And, and I knew, I knew then I had the fire. I knew I had, I was at that point it was, it was set in concrete what I was going to go do. And that was go, go be a, a frogman and go take the fight. So you were bad guys. You were running. You you try out college for a little bit running. So so you're a fast guy. Like running was something that you didn't have an issue with in high school. I would imagine um, no. you were good at running. Um, and but but what comes next after that? Uh, after you uh, sort of explore college a little bit and um, walk us through your journey from there. Sure. So when I went to school for a year and um, it it came to cra- uh, track season in the first spring semester and I um I'm pretty sure it was the first semester or sorry the second semester and I I injured myself on a trail run like in a nice easy trail run that that kind of precluded me from from continuing my track journey at that school because I was I was out my ankle was shot everything was was uh it was beat up and uh so I was out for the season and like I said before academics was not my priority I only went for the sports for the, uh, for the challenge. So what I did was I, I kind of got out. I stopped going to school. I, I healed up for a few months. I worked for, uh, I would say about a year, uh, healed up and just trained. I trained and trained and trained every day, day in and day out. And then I, about two months prior to, to boot camp, after I had, you know, signed the dotted line, I stopped working entirely. I had saved enough money to stop working entirely and just focus on training. Um, and that's when, um, around February, I, I, of 2004, early 2004, I left for, for boot camp. And so, so you go off, is there any, um, concern on your mom's, from your mom's perspective or your older brother or your older sister, um, about you doing this or were they all pretty supportive of you going and, and taking the fight? You know, they were, they were supportive, but in all honesty and probably for the better, um, my mother really had no idea what a Navy SEAL was, mm-hmm. and and it it, t- it would take her years to find out what a SEAL actually did and what a SEAL what SEALs went through, um, as far as training goes and things like Hell Week and whatnot. Um, and, and my brother was always supportive, super supportive. Um, yeah, like oh, my whole family was supportive. They they thought it was it was cool that I was in. Obviously, they were scared. Obviously, my mom didn't want her little boy to you know get hurt or whatever. She for the for from all I know, she thought I was likely just going to be on a ship somewhere. I told her the Navy and that's what she know. That's what she understood. Um, and that was better. That was, that was honestly better for me to know that there was that sort of that, that ignorance in what I was going to go through. Cause I didn't want her to know what I was about to go through. So, so walk us through a little bit of the training and, um, how you were able to handle that. Um, what that was like, and I really would love for you to get into the mindset of it. So, I, look, I think the physical challenges are, are pretty well documented. I think a lot of people on here um, are, are somewhat aware of it. Um, certainly, there have been plenty of movies and, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's been talked about. But can you just talk about the mentality and the mindset and what you did um, when going through that and, and the challenges and, and how you operated in that, in that situation? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's important to tell a few stories before I even ever got to Buds, though. Um, and some of these are, are, I had terrible vision. You should understand I had like a 2400 vision before going to boot camp. Um, so prior to, to boot camp, I took the, the eye exam and the eye color exam, everything. And I had passed, I, I, I got a seal challenge contract, everything signed. Um, my old recruiter who was happened to be a seal. Also, I had driven up to, um, Connecticut actually to go see a seal specifically from South Jersey because I didn't want to talk to any regular recruiters. I wanted, I wanted to hear it from their mouths and I wanted the, the direct path connection. Um, so by the time I get to boot camp, um, they give me a re-examination, uh, for my eyesight and I lose the seal challenge contract. I lost it. I was no longer going to buds. I was no longer going to be a seal. My whole, everything is dashed. So, you know, because I had been in, you know, such good shape when I was at boot camp, my, we took the physical, uh, fitness assessments and, um, my boot camp RDC, which is like the head drill instructor, he saw that I, that I had, and I'm still in contact with him today, him and his son. Um, he saw that I had the motivation and I had the numbers, uh, physically to go do it. I, I finished, I almost broke the boot camp record when it came to the run switch or the run push-ups and sit-ups. Um, I ran something like a 7:30 for the mile and a half in boot camp. Um, I was just blazing and, and he saw that I was, that I was motivated. So I, I, in large part, I owe a lot of, a lot of, uh, what I was able to do to him because he, now I'm not saying this is <laughs> legal technically, but he, he, he picked me up out of the, um, the boot camp compartment at night, one of these nights and he walked me over to this real shady doctor who happened to just sign off my my eyesight that oh said I was gosh. good enough. Yeah, but it it also actually gets worse even even before boot camp. Actually, uh, before I got to boot camp, I knew that I had heart arrhythmia. I had like holes in my heart, and I had skip beats. I had all these different things going on with my heart that were that would prevent me from even joining the 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 navy. Um, so one of the things that I did was I, I went to the local library. Obviously this was a time before the internet was so vast and, and you know, you could do all these searches. I went to the library and I looked up arrhythmia and, and I looked up how do you detect arrhythmia? And I saw like, I read about the echocardiograms and how they do it. And I knew I was going to receive some checks in my heart and everything. So in preparation for this, when I get to MEPS and I go to do my physical assessment, um, I'm sitting outside the doctor's office and I'm doing uh, dips on the chair, like dips on the chairs. That way I can raise my heart rate at very high. And then when I get into the office, I'm both laying on the desk as he's putting the the device on my chest to, to listen to my heart. And I'm doing flutter kicks and leg lifts real light so he can't even see it. And I'm also holding my breath, doing breath holds so that my heart rate is just at such a high rate that they can't detect any of the arrhythmia that's going on. So My body is having such a reaction to this right now. Like it's part like, man, you're a badass. It's part like, man, you're stupid. It's, it's part <laughs> like, man, I'm a wimp. It's part like, holy crap. Like our system's kind of flawed. Like there is just so much running through my mind and honestly, like almost like tension in my body listening to this. And part of the reason I think for me personally is I'm deaf in my left ear. And from a young age, I can remember my parents telling me, like, you don't have to worry about going to war because they won't take you. And so one of the things I'm, I'm just curious about is, like, what is it 
that would allow you or inspire you or motivate you to go through all of these loops to try to put yourself in enemy territory. Yeah, it's like it, it's like almost an engineer's mind where there's a problem and I try to figure out a way to solve it. Uh, it, it really is just a testament to the human will to go after what you really want. And if you really want something, uh, get after it and don't give up. You know, I, I was not going to give up. I was not going to take that. I was, uh, that I was not going to take no for an answer in terms of me b- not being allowed in the military because of a, a heart. I, I, I listed all the potential things, limiting things of my body, uh, that would prevent me from joining. And I researched and tried to I- eliminate or find ways to eliminate those as reasons to, to get me, uh, no, to get me, um, uh, uh, kicked out or, or sorry, not even allowed to, to uh, attempt to try out. Would you literally have a list of those and, and check them off? Oh, I, I still do that today. Yeah. It, it's, 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 that's a part, a whole other part of my philosophy of the way I think about, you know, challenges and, and, and if, if you want me to explain it to you, it's like, no, let's I go. Went, yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Come on. So, so it, the way I think about it is I, I'll see a, a goal in the distance. Right. And, and I have a, because I have a, like more of an imaginative mind, I have a goal in the distance and I have a, a cube that I need to get to that point out in the distance. And the best way to do that is to begin shaving and cutting the edges of those cubes. And what those edges are, are, are distractions in life. They are things that will stop you. And so you start shaving down all those things until your cube becomes a smooth rolling ball and it's smooth and it rolls with limited friction to that goal. And that's for every single goal in life. You look at, okay, I want to, I want to get into, like I used it for, for one of these Ivy league universities. I'm like, okay, well, what is, what are these distractions? There's social media and Facebook. Okay. Gone deactivating. Okay. What else? It's like, oh, all right, well, I get involved. I go to the bar and I drink. Okay. Not drinking for two years. I don't hang out with these people who are distractions. I, these are, these are all edges on this, on this cube that I shave off so that I can turn it, that goal to, I can turn that effort into a smooth rolling ball to get me to that, to that goal. If that makes sense. hundred percent. Are those written down? I I've written it down and posted that on Instagram. Yeah. On a story about two years ago. So Um, so you're also declaring to the world like, Hey, like this, why are you posting it to Instagram? Because I, I like to share, you know, one of the main, uh, one of the main things I do like about Instagram is that I get to share uh, my, not just my journey, but I get to share a journey that's very human. You often see a lot of both, you know, seals and, and high level athletes and people who come up with these, with these phrases that are like, get some phrases that are like, they will help a certain group of people that are already sort of elevated to that degree, but that just need that jump. I'm not, I don't, I, I want everybody to be able to come up. So I want to tell the stories of my reality. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to lie about anything. I want to talk about, you know, all the, the harsh roads, winding dark roads that it took for me to get there. So I want everybody to realize that they can achieve. So I want to bring up those from the very bottom that don't necessarily know that they can achieve what they want to achieve. So I share these, these, these sort of techniques and tactics of how I think about, um, moving towards goals and achieving goals and, and really just overcoming yeah, and if you look at uh, Mario's Instagram, you'll see he has some cool pictures on there. But underneath every picture, he is journaling. Um, and like I don't know if you call it journaling, but I would call it journaling. And 
you are very descriptive and you're a hell of a writer. And uh, I think your words are actually where people are getting most inspired. And um, so I encourage everyone to take a look at Mario's Instagram, not necessarily just for the pictures, but also for the content underneath them. Um, and I think that's what I looked at before this conversation. I wanted to see some of the things that make you unique. And I think that's the best place to really get a sense of how you how you look at the world. But the way I, I am understanding how you process this is that you have a vision, you make it very clear, you have a destination, and then you are going to create a process by eliminating certain things to make sure that you have clarity around what it is you need to do from an action standpoint to get you from where you are to where you want to go. So you become very clear as you think about like goal setting, it is, that is the outcome I want. Here is the process I need to take. And I love how you, you throw in, here's what I'm not going to do. Um, and I think we often say like, all right, what are you going to do? Um, like, for example, I could exercise for two hours a day, but then after that, if I go and just eat thousands of calories and binge eat and then sit on my TV the rest of the day, like that exercise might not have been that useful for me. Um, so you're very clear about what also you need to eliminate and, and you make goals as far as what I'm not going to do. And then the other thing that I would encapsulate that you really talked about is this mindset of I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to where I need to go. Um, and the way you were describing the heart condition and your sight is like, look, I was going to do whatever it took to get to where I was going to go. And I knew that those were things that could get in my way. Um, so whether it's building relationships with people that can take me to a doctor, uh, who can clear me or it's learning how to control my heart rate or whatever that all looked like, I'm going to do whatever it takes because nothing's going to stop me from getting to where I want to go. Precisely. Yeah, like exactly. One of those like just like you were talking about the uh, like a fitness, for example, one of the prime examples that I that I often whenever anybody asks me is is not not permitting for the possible introduction of a distraction. And why and what I mean by that is if my fitness goal, if my goal is fitness and I want to perhaps compete in a physique competition. Um, well, you know what? One of the greatest distractions is bringing your cell phone into the gym and you can bring it in the gym, but lock it up. I, I recommend getting a an iPod and getting a, a playlist created so that you can have your workout playlist. And you, what you do is you're essentially chipping that off your, your, your sphere. You're removing that as a potential distraction and, and really just for a brief slice of your, your, the pie chart of your day, you're just getting after it and, and, and disinviting any of those kinds of distractions. And then that's a really an essential element of the way I, I think when I, when I have any goal, when it comes to any goal. I love it. It's, uh, I think there's going to be a big movement toward dumb phones into the future where people are becoming more and more aware of how these phones are rigged to just distract us. And you see it now, they make these phones for like kids um, where there's no internet and they can only have 10, 10 contacts on there. Yeah. So I'm curious where we're going. What other tools or techniques do you use to make sure that you're focused or you're clear um, or your, you know, distraction, I'm not gonna say distraction free, but you're limiting distractions. Are there anything, is there anything else you do throughout your day to try to be at your best from a focus standpoint? Um, when it comes to, so one of the things I like to do is, uh, if you were to, if you were to walk around my, my place, you'd notice that I have whiteboards all over my walls, but not just whiteboards. I have, I have on my glass door that, that, and I could, and since we're on FaceTime, I could actually show you that. But 
you'll see that I have dry erase markers on every mirror, on every wall, on every glass, everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And and I just I just write. showed him my whiteboard, which is like I think of myself as like a mad scientist. I feel bad for people when they come to my office, but I love that. Like, yeah, that- I think I think it's key. I think you can even if it comes to like like for me doing math problems or or, or anything, you're you're trying to learn a proof. You get up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you, you're setting these reminders up for you in all aspects of life. I think this is crucial to realign your focus. And if you want to be like, you know, if you want to be a better person, if you want to only speak positively to people about people from now on, these things are, are easily, easily, easy to forget these goals, unless they're written in your face. I'm human. You know, I have a human brain, so I have a tendency to forget and I need reminders. So I have these whiteboards and, and dry erase markers everywhere. That way, if I, you know, in order to maintain focus, I, I do, I write, I write everywhere and I need it in my face. You know, uh, that's one of the major things I think that I, I'd say I would do to, uh, to maintain that focus. Any meditation, visualization, any sort of deep work in that way, or, uh, and this can be even when you were uh, in, in the seals, but, um, have you ever dabbled with that or experimented with that or, or done that? I, I've, yeah, I've dabbled with, with some meditation, but it's, it's really not the kind of like, uh, like meditation that most people might think it, it's really like more the new age meditation where, where you really, you lasso your, your mind really lasso it and nail it down to the present moment. And, and you really just are super appreciative of every, uh, every breath, every blink of your eye, you know, you can take a snapshot of the moment that you're in and see the way the shadows are casted due to the light. And you're, and you just, you're appreciative of that. And I, I find myself lassoing to these moments throughout the day. And it, it really just readjusts my, my, or realigns my, my perspective and my appreciation and gratitude for life. And, and I find, I, I mean, you'll, I'm, I'm overall, I'm, I would say I'm, 99.9% a positive person and happy all the time, just about all the time. Um, and, and it's really because of these little mini meditations that I do on, on trying to maintain perspective on, on the world, but also, you know, things like astronomy, things that I love, things that I study also help with that. They give you a better cosmic understanding of your, of your place in the universe. Yeah. I mean, you're hitting on a lot of factors. So positive psychology, and I know you're familiar with that. And we talked about uh, some of that when we got together and Marty Seligman and the work that he's done. Um, but you, you sort of practice gratitude, you practice mindfulness, just being aware. Um, so it sounds like you're integrating that into your world. And then, I mean, you're just uh, seemingly very curious guy and, and wanting to explore and find out how to think and how to think at your best. Let's go back to buds. Um, yeah. Take me there. Fear, um, confidence, um, doubt. Um, what is that process like? Um, you, you sort of gave us a hint by saying like, Hey, I was setting records. Like I was like, uh, I got from a uh, physical standpoint, like I was, I was pretty damn good. And, and by the way, for those that don't know, Mario from a, uh, let me say this the right way from a physiological standpoint, I, I don't think he looks the part of what you would think of a seal. Like how tall are you, Mario? I'm five, eight. Five eight, and how much yeah. did you weigh entering? Uh, yeah, when I went to Buds, I weighed about 130, 135 pounds. Right, so like a good wrestler, you know, he he's like five eight, one thirty five. Wrestling uh, coaches would be all over Mario, but seals. I would imagine you are on the smaller side of 
of that group. Um, did people look at you um, and, and sort of doubt you or question you? Or did you just blow it away physically that there was no doubt? Yeah, I mean, that uh, that doubt, of course, it's there. Um, everyone, even today, still people doubt, you know, that's, that's kind of just the thing that you put up with in life. But one of the things that that physically, when I prepared for buds, I, I for the years prior, I, again, like I told you, I tried to, um, I tried to imagine that like that sphere, like I was talking earlier. And one of those things I wanted to do was I, I wanted to, I read as much about buds as I possibly could. And I tried to experience all those things that I was going to experience in buds. That way I could limit the surprises that I was going to face. I could limit all those uh, surprise. It would, it would be experience. I, I would go and put, buy the same types of boots and the utilities pants. And I'd get, I bought a rucksack and I would get wet. I would wet my pants and I'd go on soft sand runs. I would try to mimic these experiences so that I could, I wouldn't be again, surprised. I even got Patty, uh, dive certified so I could get, um, so I could get some experience underwater and diving before I got to second phase and buds, because I wanted to have, I wanted to remove that newness as a, as a potential, you know, a thing that would scare me. Um, so pretty, so, pretty neurotic in your preparation for this, right? Like if, for, we, yeah. if we really think about this, like you were looking up how to control your heart, you were putting on boots and doing different things on sand. Um, you were very prepared. You, you, your preparation, when we talked about earlier, your ability to just dive in the pool and let's just go for it. That you probably weren't very prepared for, but yeah. you're now combining. All right, I'm going to prepare like crazy and, and make sure that no stone is left unturned. And I'm going to chisel off every edge um, of this to create a ball so that when I get into it, I can just focus on the things that I need to do to execute. Is it, is that how you went about it? The preparation, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And I think Um, it's very similar. Like, um, so I have a theory about athletes and since you're an athlete, um, I'll get your opinion. Like, I think the best athletes in the world are super neurotic in their preparation so that they can be adaptable in their performance. Uh, they are humble in preparation so they can be confident when they're performing. They fear failure when they're preparing and saying, I am not going to fail at this so they can be fearless in their performance. So um, as I hear you describe all of those things in preparation, um, it sounds like you hit on that. So now give me like what the mindset was like when you're actually in it. So when I was in it, it was rough. It was much rougher than I thought because again, I, I went through a winter class and I was 130 pounds. And so that, and I did not do, you can't really train for the cold that much uh, or at all, really. Um, so it, it sucked, man. It, it was really a kick in the nuts. But uh, again, I was confident and I was, I was just excited to be there um, for a large part of it. And, and I'll tell you, I was more, I was for the most part, I was like a quieter guy, like starting off. And I would listen to a lot of these braggadocious, big, jacked, you know, cut up um, um, dudes. And they uh, they would quit and I would celebrate, not not like celebrate vocally, but I would celebrate in a way that I was like, OK, I'm, I'm like one minute tougher than those guys, you know. So I would take things incrementally as I was going through buds. I wasn't playing the long game. I wasn't thinking about graduating buds. I was thinking about surviving to that next evolution or to that next meal. Um, 
You and were moment. I, you were moment to moment and competing moment to moment, and not. I was. Yeah. You weren't as focused now on that goal post at the end. You were literally like moving the ball moment to moment. And yeah. You just focused on that and competing with whoever, whenever, however, and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's how it's. That's how I I took the advice of the instructors who who promoted that kind of thinking. They said, you know, you don't think in the long run because it's going to be so difficult that you should. You should break it down. You should, you know, maybe focus on meal to meal. That some that's something that's achievable. Get to one meal, okay, and then, especially, I'm talking mostly about Hell Week, for example. Um, well, yeah. So I, I feel like I got, I always took the strength of those that rang out, you know, and I and I was like, even those bigger guys that would see me. And, that, and when like, you say rang out, explain that because some people don't know what you mean by that. Well, in Buds, there's a there's a giant golden bell, like very made famous, like GI Jane, where you ring three times and you lay your helmet down, and, and that signifies you've dropped on request or that you quit. And you can hear that bell throughout the entire compound, so you know. And in fact, the instructors make it easy for you to quit. Um, for example, if you're doing a, a an evolution, if you're doing an event on the beach, they will literally tie the bell to the back of the vehicle, one of the vehicles, and bring it out to you to make it easier for you to quit. Um, and th- these are some of the, some of the mental games that the instructors will play on you that, that, that I think is, it's looking back now, it's kind of funny, but back then it's, it's, you're miserable. Well, I think there, you know, let's make it easy to quit, uh, so that when you are in the thick of whatever you're going to be in, there is no quit there. There's no leaving anyone behind or whatever other sort exactly. of motto that you've got. Uh, and if, if you are one of those people that's going to grab for the bell, I think of like Taco Bell, which isn't really what I should be thinking about right now. But like, if you're one of those people that's <laughs> going to be quick to ring the bell, um, you know, your brothers and whoever's serving alongside you probably uh, <laughs> doesn't want that person that's going to be quick to ring the bell. Um, so, so you're going through it. Um, obviously challenged. You're thinking moment to moment. Uh, you're living present. Um, and I would imagine the physical challenges of it as well, just sort of, you know, rides on you. What was your self-talk like when you were going through that? How would you talk to yourself, um, when you're going through, um, some of those challenges physically? And were there any challenges that because you were smaller, that you were at a disadvantage maybe than some guy who's six two, 200 or whatever? Um, so for the most part, I would say Buds is kind of like a smaller man's game because it, when you do run, uh, in terms of running and swimming and and the O course, these are good for small guys. However, big guys have the advantage on, especially those longer swims, but staying warm, um, they definitely have the, that advantage. Uh, but as far as uh, the self-talk that I, that I participated in, you know, I, I had a conversation earlier today with an old friend of mine, and and this, I, I like to believe that I am inspired and that I'm motivated. And this is what one of my future postings on on Instagram is going to be about, because I get the question often: what motivates me, or how do I continue to self inspire me? And and I try to I try to think that yes, I'm a positive person, and I'm inspired by I'm inspired by all the goodness and the great, wonderful things in life and, and love of family and all these things. But the truth is if, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be absolutely honest, I don't know that I've accomplished or achieved anything in my life that wasn't inspired by pain or having been hurt in the past. I, I like to, I like to, you know, as I was going through this struggle, I, and I still do this today. This is a, a mechanism that I use. For example, a, a quick short example is throughout the day. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm generally, I'm always kind of a, a happy guy, 
But if I, if I suffer what I perceive as some injustice done towards me, or if somebody hurts me, or if somebody, you know, stabs me in the back or, or does something to anger me, I don't, I don't react then. I, I, I tend to take these, these different things and, and condense them like a neutron star, you know, that produces so much heat. And I explode with them later on in the gym through, through, through a series of pull-ups in my workout. And I draw upon this hurt and this pain and, and these difficulties and that fires me up. And so when I was going through buds, I mean, yes, there were, there were times where I would see like my brother's face or, or family members and friends that would inspire me to, you know, make them proud and be happy. But really it was that very doubt that I received from people even then in buds and in my past and incidences in my past. And, and, and I'm, I'm sensitive to, to a lot of the, 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 you know, events in the media today in regards to race, because, you know, being a Puerto Rican kid from, uh, from the hood where I grew up, um, I, I did suffer a lot of that, but I didn't, I didn't react to that in a negative way. I, t- I tend to collect these things and use them as a catapult to, to thrust me towards in a, in a way, in a, in a, direction that is better that i get to achieve more because i know nothing angers your your enemies or those that that have visited uh, suffering upon you more than your achievements and your success so when i was in buds i i, I drew, drew upon uh both but mostly it was that hurt and pain it was more it was more like i'm gonna make it through this like i know i'm gonna make it through this because you know i i have to I, i'm a better person and i have the fuel i have the fire there and it burns hotter because of these injustices that I've suffered. So I would, t- I tended to draw upon a lot of these incidents in my past as a child. So a couple of thoughts. One, I think pain is the, it's the leading indicator for change, right? Like most people, if they're an alcoholic, they don't actually change their um, processes until something drastic happens. Right. And that, that pain is like, all right, I need to change. Um, there was a study done on 400 super successful people, like ultra successful people um, in the world. And it found that 75% of them face some sort of severe adversity in their childhood. And um, it's just pretty remarkable. And, um, you know, you look at people like Oprah, um, you know, or, or, or we can go Richard Branson or there's different types of adversity, um, but they found that, you know, maybe parent dying or abuse or, you know, raised in the hood or whatever it might be. And it's certainly not suggesting that we should encourage people to abuse people or, um, you know, not strive to get out of adverse situations. But there is an amazing thing that can happen if we leverage our pain. And if, and what you were talking about, we can create space when the pain occurs. And so you use the word not being reactive because our instinct is to be reactive from the pain. And that's why a lot of people run into trouble when they face something uh, drastic in their life because our instinct is to be reactive. I know for me, like my instinct is to be reactive when someone wrongs me. Uh, This morning, my son started freaking out. He's a two-year-old and just has some terrible two stuff. And my instinct is saying to be reactive and to be anger angry. But if I can create space there, I can actually learn about myself in that moment and create awareness of like, what am I feeling? What am I going through? And then down the road, like you said, I can use that and leverage that or reflect on what happened. And I know we're going to get into post-traumatic stress. Um, 
And, and certainly it's a massive issue, not just for military, but for a lot of people uh, in our society. And there's also post-traumatic growth and there's science around, you know, those super survivors that we're, that we're sort of talking about with those, with that study of 400 people. Um, and I say all those things never to minimize people that are coming from um, un- unequal playing fields or unequal playing fields, because there, that injustice shouldn't exist. And but the reality is, as long as we live in this world, there's always going to be inequality. Um, I hate to say that, but it is reality. And we need to try to arm ourselves for what are we going to do with the pain? What are we going to do with it? How are we going to handle it? And we need to continue having conversations because the reality is that life, if you live long enough, you're going to experience pain. Um, you know, the only ones that don't experience pain are are infants <laughs> and they experience pain. So um, I say all that not to say that, like, I'm raising my kids. I don't want them to experience pain for the sake of experiencing pain. But when they do experience it, I want to help them to try to create space. Uh, if they can create space, then maybe they can respond rather than react. And so that's something I'm working on daily with myself because it's hard. Um, but that that just resonated with me as you sort of described your own walk and your own journey. If you want to talk, if you if I said anything that made you feel a certain way or think a certain way, I'll, I'll give you a forum. Um, and if not, we can, we can keep moving that ball a little bit, a little bit along as well. No, that was good. I agree. I have no, uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry for the rant. So, so you get through buds. Um, what's it like serving as a seal? What's it like to make it? What, walk me through, like you, you become a seal. Like you have this dream your whole life. Uh, and then to get to that, were you, did you think that you'd arrived or did you think you had just begun? Yeah, it was, it was the end of one having been there, but, but the real, uh, the real action is what I wanted. I wanted to be in that seal platoon and I wanted to be over in combat. That was being a seal to me. Uh, I'm glad that I had, I mean, I was really excited having, having made it through. Uh, in fact, the day that I graduated SQT and got pinned my trident was like, if not the greatest, one of the greatest, um, days of my life. I still call it the greatest day of my life. And, and I do so, and it has nothing to do with having been pinned my trident. It actually has to do with, uh, having sat down and had dinner that night with both my mother and father and my brother and friends. But it was the first time I ever actually had dinner, sat at the dinner table with both of them. So that's, that makes that, that just like superseded any, any or overshadowed anything else. In, how does it? How, how does that make you feel right now? As you have that image pop in your head, your smile just lit up. Uh, walk me through how that makes you feel. Just going back to that moment and being at the dinner table with them. It just it, it just makes me feel good. You know, it makes me feel great. It makes me feel good that I can sit here and say that you know, getting a seal trident was the second best thing that happened to me that day. You know, and that's huge. And and it's it's important. And I, I think it it's important to know where you know it, to. You, where you should value things. And I, and I, I remember sitting there at that dinner table and like we discussed earlier, taking a snapshot of that moment and thinking, wow, like this is actually better than getting pinned a few hours earlier. Like this is crazy. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do get excited thinking about it. It's just, you know, we all get excited when we think about our best, some of our best times for and sure. that just happens to be it for me. For sure. Walk me through what it's like to serve, to be in enemy, enemy territory, the preparation that goes into it, the mindset when you're out, um, you know, and, and, and in the field. Um, just walk us through what it takes from a mental standpoint. I think, I think for the most part, we tend to, we tend to see ourselves as, I don't know, I don't think necessarily that this is a, to the detriment of our, 
of our, you know, operation. But I think we see ourselves as almost immortal when we go out in, co- in combat. We have a, a, a level of confidence because, and I'll, I'll tell you this, I, I, there are fewer times that I felt safer here. And I don't feel as safe here in the United States as I do out in a combat zone with about 12 of my brothers, fully armed, fully stacked. You know, uh, I feel safe there because I know how after training for years with each other, you know how your brother to your left and right are going to move. You know how they smell. You know their silhouettes, how they look in 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 night vision. You just you work with these guys so much that you know how they're each going to respond to any kind of enemy action. You know which way they're going to move. You know how to move the opposite way if you need to. Uh, you just it, it becomes this this smooth flowing like river uh, because we're so we 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 train to become so efficient. In, in reaction to each other's movements that I, I felt safe, you know? So it was really exciting. It got my heart rate up. I, I, I miss there. There are aspects of it that I miss being out there, uh, catching bad guys, uh, going after those, those, some, some real high level, uh, insurgents and real high level bad guys. And, and, you know, I'm glad I did. I had fun. I got a, taught a lot of life lessons. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, I enjoyed that time. You mentioned confident, safety, excited. Can you throw a couple more adjectives just to put us in your shoes uh, as best you can, as far as what it felt like to be with your brothers, to be out there? I just love how you're describing that. I just want to go a little deeper. I, I felt like it almost felt like we were untouchable out there. Like, and, and it almost, we almost felt like cocky. Like I, I dared the enemy to, to, to come after us. There was, there was just this, uh, like, again, there's a sheer confidence and there, and when all, if, and when all else fails as a seal, you're taught to just go back to your fundamentals, you know, move back to your fundamentals in training and the shoot, move, communicate, you, you bound back, you cover and move, uh, and, and, you know, having, having almost perfected, perfected or mastered these fundamental tactics, then you're free to, uh, to move with, with some degree of, 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 you know, what's the word experimentation in your tactics, but you still feel safe because those fundamentals are there. I, I just, I remember feeling, I remember feeling, um, and I still miss that feeling today. I just remember feeling very excited. And one of the most exciting parts to me was the, um, the, the preparation sort of ceremony that each individual guy had. Some guys would go and throw in, I don't know, classical music as they jocked up and threw in their gear. Some guys would play Metallica. Some guys would immediately like, you know, bring their gear into the gym and start jocking up in the gym and do pull-ups, you know, with their gear as they put on every piece of gear. And and, and those little ceremonies, because, you know, you you put on the ceremonies and no one thinks they're going to die, but you're like, it's almost this uh, subconscious, like, I'm going to go out you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make this a ceremonious thing. And, and we do, and you do that. And I think every warrior has their own like ceremony as to how they go and prepare mentally and, and, and get in the zone get in the mindset of how I'm going to, you know, how I'm going to like a surgeon pierce through, you know, any trouble that happens or goes, goes down. Uh, what did you, what did, what did you do? What, well, what I did is I, one of my favorite things I would like to, you know, throw headphones on and, uh, and it was really like a breathing technique. I, I like to take deep breaths and, and really get into the song. It, it, for me, it was all different kinds of music. It wasn't just a, a genre of music. I would play like, you know, if it was going after like, like a real bad guy who had four Marines 
uh, under his belt that he had killed, then I, I, I might throw in some like rap, some Biggie and Tupac, or I might throw in Metallica metal that just gets me in this like vengeance kind of mindset, you know? And then, and then, uh, if it was something else, you know, I might throw on like, uh, like, uh, some Hans Zimmer or some classical music or some, something like, uh, I don't know. It, it was just different, but I just remember the smells and, you know, putting on the gear and, and just really, um, getting excited and really getting like almost butterflies. Cause you're just so excited. You're about to go put all this training to work. You're going to go get after it. And what would you guys do after when you came back? Was there a debriefing? Was there a reflection part? Like what goes on after you come? Yeah. Back? Every, every, and I think this is crucial for, for, and applicable to just about everything in life is whenever you do something big, you do something major, you always do like an after action debrief and you, and you talk about what went wrong. Most importantly, uh, what went right is fine. That's, that's, we don't care about that. That everybody, everybody knows that's what you train for. Let's talk about both what went wrong and what we could do and what we will do to be better next time and how we can, you know, Hey, uh, you know, I heard your, I heard your, 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 your gear was rattling a little bit. You know, uh, you need to fucking clear. You need to, you know, tighten you that can up. Curse, we're good. Curse away. <laughs> <laughs> you need to tighten that up. And and so we talk about what we could do better and what we what we did what didn't go as planned. You know what? How? And you, you can have your newer guys um, explain what they would do different. You know, how would you have mitigated this risk that we this unforeseen? Uh, you know, this tire that blew out. Okay, well, here's the steps we're gonna go. We're gonna halt the first truck, you know, and we just do these debriefs. And, and I think that sharpens even, even more the, the, the tools and the techniques that we use uh, for future combat, for future missions. Was your gratitude ever challenged while you were over there? Uh, what do you mean? Gra- my, my gratitude. So you talked about gratitude a lot now. Was there ever a moment where you were not grateful to be there? Was there ever a moment where, man, I wish I was back home or, or any of those types of feelings? Um, I liked being there, uh, for the most part, uh, unfortunately during my third, my third deployment, uh, I, I happened to work with a guy work for a guy who I just did not get along with. Um, and it seemed as if he was taking unnecessary risks. He wanted to go do missions that, that had no clear objective, had no goal. These are, these are what we often refer, refer to as like, um, like, um, um, what is it? Like a recon patrol almost. So we, we would go out and patrol until we got shot at so we can identify. And that's like, you know, until we got ambushed, this is not the part of the job description, I think, of of a SEAL platoon. Um, so there were there were times where he and I would butt heads a lot. And um, it was more times than not, in fact. And, and I just uh, I thought it, we were going about it the wrong way. And uh, so maybe I lost a little bit of gratitude then. But uh, I still think I was right. <laughs> You're someone who's clearly a thinker, someone who likes to be a deep thinker. Um, how was it for you having to, I mean, you talked about the uniqueness of, you know, being, uh, you know, a punk rock kid in high school. What was it like for you to have to conform? Um, I, I would assume there's an, a level of conformity that exists uh, from training um, and, and being part of a team, walk me through how you toggled the uniqueness that you always valued and, and also conforming. Uh, you know, uh, if I'm going to be honest, I, I didn't have the easiest time transitioning into, into that, that group, that group think, um, that exists in the SEAL teams. There, there's platoons are, are just the best operators because 
of their ability to to think and and behave like each other. I think this is what makes uh, the SEAL teams just so good. However, anything anything external of a platoon it becomes a detriment. It, it, I think you you learn you learn um, you know something as simple in buds as pass the word. Let's say we're going to go attack this target. You have to pass the word up and down the line. If we get in a firefight, hey, move left, move left, and you turn to your right and you scream to that guy, move left, move left. You pass this word. This kind of thinking is essential to survival. It's essential to saving lives, to catching the enemy, to to doing all these things. It's, it's, you can't ask why in that moment. You just have to no, do. You just have to do. And so this is this is what makes the military real good. However, part of the problem is this this kind of logic then permeates regular you know perspective and and, and you know there isn't necessary a lot necessarily a lot of critical thinking injected into other subjects or other areas. And being a being a punk rocker, I, I was able. I mean, I was kind of an outsider, you know, and, and I was, I butted heads a lot in my first platoon because I kind of, yeah, I understood tactics and I understood, but I thought differently. And then, um, sadly to say, in order to, in order to survive, I had to, I had to adopt, um, the mindset of a lot of these guys, you know, which what, was, yeah. What would an ideal, like if you were doing it differently, how would you integrate, um, maybe some of the creative thinking or um, the unique thinking that you would bring to the table with also knowing that there is tremendous value in, in the group think as, as you said, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know that question. Really I, I tough, that. man. Really yeah, tough. I, I don't know the answer to that. That's hard because I, I still think the, the best way for me to have done it was to eventually just go along with it. Just buy become, in, right? Buy yeah, in. You, you just got to buy in and, and that it, it sucked. And it wasn't, I felt like I wasn't me for a long time. Um, and, and you know, it's not always like sunshine and rainbows, you know, it's not always the positive things. There's a, there, there, there does exist some, some, you know, seal teams is just a microcosm of regular society itself. So you have your, you have your real piece of shit scumbags that, that are in the seal teams. And unfortunately, sometimes some of these guys are like the alpha males that everybody tries to emulate. So if you're not adopting a lot of the mannerisms and, and habits and worldviews and perspective of this guy, then you're all of a sudden an inferior person in the platoon. And unfortunately, I had to drink that tea. You know, I had to drink that that juice and and become part of that problem for a while. But you know, I managed to escape after a while. So you come back home. Uh, what's the transition like uh, when you when you when you are coming back home and assimilating? uh, outside of, uh, the military. So uh, you're talking after I got out of the teams. Yeah. So you, I think you said you had three tours. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> so I don't know, maybe in, in between each one, you can go there, but, um, my real curiosity is, is, um, you know, becoming a civilian or, or, you know, however that all plays out. I, I'm just curious how that transition goes. Cause I would imagine that's a pretty massive transition for a human being to go through. Yeah, it was, it was difficult at first. Um, in fact, it, it's just difficult, but it's also really awesome because for the first time you, you, when you step out of the military, you realize, uh, uh, you no longer have the prying eyes of 15 different bosses that can stop you at any moment and ask you why your sideburns are long, you know, none of this stupidity anymore. Um, at that same, on the other side of that coin is, is that stability, that, that foundation under your feet, that safety net of that paycheck every two weeks, auto deposit, none of that is there anymore. So, so you're, you're kind of, um, left 
uh, unstable a bit. But for me, I, I went down a, a long and dark path, man. I, I, I didn't necessarily have a goal. It was one of the first times in my life that I didn't have a goal. And I, I saw that, you know, I had stumbled in life and that residual rage that I had in the military found, found a, a, an escape through alcohol and through violence. I was getting in a lot of fights and I was drinking a lot and I was doing drugs and, and participating in things that I just shouldn't have done. Um, I, uh, again, this is because I, like I said, I had no real goal. This lasted for about a year and a half, man. And I, I saw, I went to, to psychologists, I went to psychiatrists and I didn't see a lot of these people really doing anything for me. Um, and that wasn't until I, you know, I, I had an incident where I was, I was drinking a lot and I, and I had my ex-girlfriend, um, as I was cleaning my apartment one night or one day, I, I found a, one of my pistols that I had couldn't find and it was like buried under the the behind the, the block where i kept my tv the cabinets and i said oh wow like where i'm wondering where this was and she she revealed to me that she had to hide it because i would come home drunk and i'd have it loaded and i'd put it to my head and i'd and i didn't remember any of this stuff and having you know been arrested for like battery and and all these things that I, it was like rock bottom. It was like we were talking about earlier. We, we hit a point where we're like, wow, like this is bad. Um, I have to make some changes. And so I I realized I needed to sign up. I signed up for a 52 week, uh, 52 week long prolonged exposure therapy with the VA, which I have nothing but excellent things to say about the VA. My, my experience was, was badass. It was awesome. And they, they worked their ass off to help me. But I signed up for this 52-week-long prolonged exposure where we worked with, uh, with my anger issues. And when I approached them, I said, look, I, I don't think I deserve PTSD training or anything because I don't suffer from like survivor's guilt or anything like that. I just have like anger issues and, I, and I'm just mad. You know, I'm, I get rage and I get in fights and their response was very welcoming. They said to me, you know, it doesn't matter, you know. PTSD can be a spike, uh, an overly dr- drastic spike in any of the negative emotions that you have. So like anger and drinking can uh, counts as PTSD. It's not just this survivor skill. It's not just this thing. Um, so I, I was all in. So I, I, I dove right in. Um, I participated. Was your, was your ex-girlfriend like, was she the reason that pushed you there or were you having a wake up call based on the thing she was telling you? Like how, cause you're saying you dove in, but it sounds like you were in a dark, you said dark place, you know, what pushed you to actually sign up and actually show up and, and do it? Well, I think it was a, I think it was a, a, a combination of a lot of things. I, I didn't, I hadn't come this far in my life only to let my, you know, my girlfriend at the time then, and, and my family down and people had, you know, all these people that I had, I had, I had made feel proud of me. I was like, where am I going now? Like I, so all these things combined and I, I just felt like there was more I could do in this world. So, so I, I took it upon myself and with my ex-girlfriend's help. She did help me. Um, um, and, and we went and, and, and signed me up. So yeah, a lot of those motivating factors were my, were my, my friends and my family. And what I was talking about earlier, um, cutting off, you know, the chipping off the edges of that cube, me trying to get help, it it, it dealt with getting off of, you know, registering for college for classes. It it 
dealt with cutting away those negative influences in my life. Those people that only ever wanted to like hang out with me when I was drunk or when I was drinking, it, 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 it included cutting off, ex, you know, completely alcohol. I was, I went completely alcohol free, um, because I had, I finally had a new goal in my mind and, 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 uh, stop going to the bars and all these things. Um, so when you, when you were talking about the cube earlier, was that something that you did then, or is that something that you have come up with now reflecting on it? No, I, that's something I did then. I, I even actually drew a cube on the whiteboards on my walls. And, and I had it, you know, like those, you know, three dimensional cubes you drew when you were like, you know, 10 years old, I had these and I would chip away the edges. I would physically draw these things out. And, and so you now have a 52 week goal, whereas for a year and a half, you didn't have anything that you were working towards. Now it's like, all right, I'm signing up for this 52 week, this year long deal, um, to get better. And now I've got this cube and we've got once again, an ending, an outcome here. And what do I need to do to make sure that that ball is moving forward? Exactly. But also in conjunction with that, um, with that training, I also had signed up for classes. I, every, every night I would go home and I'd watch, I'd watch, uh, astronomy videos. I was just always fatuated, infatuated by astronomy. And, and a friend of mine once said, why don't you just go to school for this stuff? Because you love it. And prior to that, I'd never considered that a possibility. I'm like, who, you know, I, I was like, wow, I, I was taken aback that, that I could actually go do that, go study these things. And, um, so as I started school, I met up with a couple of other veterans who were very highly intelligent and very, very eager, you know, to attain degrees and, and just a great bunch of guys, um, guys and gals. And they, they motivated me. They inspired me. They were like, you know, why don't you, why don't you, uh, apply to the Ivy leagues too? You know, you don't set your sights high, go, go higher. Uh, and so I, for the first time I felt that it wasn't me that was pushing other people. It was other people pushing me to set my sights higher. And I got to tell you, some of these guys, um, that I worked with have graduated from Stanford, from, uh, from Yale. The first one went to Yale. Another one came here to Columbia. So they all ended up Ivy league. All of us in that group, um, ended up going. So, so just, just to chime in, there's, there's just a, a pattern here that I'm going to point out the swim coach who said, yeah, you can do this. Like we're going to do some extra stuff to get you, you know, doing the butterfly stroke. You've got the, uh, the recruiter who said, yeah, you can become a SEAL and let me try to help you, whatever it takes to be it. And now you've got these guys who are putting this into your mind to say like, yeah, you can go and you know go to a great school. And so I'm sure as you're thinking about this, you have leveraged these people along the way who have given to you hope and given to you um, dreams that, that once you, once you have someone sort of saying, Hey man, like this is possible you latch onto that. Um, yeah. And that's, that's just a pretty cool thing because I don't think it's those people, Mario. Um, I think those people exist in all of our lives. Uh, I'm not minimizing those people, but I think a lot of time we're often too blind or too deaf to hear those people. Um, so uh, I think we do work from the inside out. Um, we just have to be open to seeing those people. Uh, but a lot of times we're too, egotistical or too drunk or too, um, in a, in a state of victimhood. And it's not even necessarily wrongfully so. Um, but if we can open our eyes and ears, um, sometimes those people are there, but those are patterns that I've noticed as you've told your story and you've given credit to those people, but it's also a testament to you being open, uh, and, and ready, um, for, for that. Yeah. You're, 
you're, you're totally right. And one of the things that what we, you and I talked about when we met up here in New York a few months back is, is precisely what you said, because, you know, oftentimes we can meet these people who, who may slightly deviate us from a path that maybe we were going to go on, but, but that have inspired us or reminded us what we're capable of. And it's actually us. And you bring up a really good point because that in my path, it also works negatively because I've had in my past where, like I said earlier, where I had allowed myself to believe I was bad at math and, and, you know, the, the sciences, but particularly math because I had, uh, uh, an experience with my older sister, or it might've been my older cousin who, who told me that everybody, we're all bad at math. Everybody in this family is bad at math. No one's good at, at, at math. So that was a, an incident that deviated me from a path where I might have lived a life where I was good at math, but instead I took it upon myself to allow myself to believe that I was bad at math. So it, it, it took me on a diff off a different course. So yeah, you're right. It is you. It's how you it's how you uh, respond or react to these, these, these moments and, and, and how you, I guess, internalize them. And, and I, don't, I don't think we should get it twisted. Like, I think we've all heard things from people we care about that have affected us, but we need to learn how to reflect. If we get like, like I can remember a high school teacher calling me a little shit, like in, in class, like you're a little shit. Like that stuck with me. Um, now I haven't let that, become who I am. I don't think I'm a little shit. I'm kind of small, but I don't think I'm a little shit. Uh, but then I can remember someone else that I care about saying, you're really perceptive. Um, and I can remember someone else saying, man, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to do something really special in this world. And so those things do stick with us, but I think it's how we, how we interpret them that all, all that, um, eventually dictates what our actions are. So I don't think thoughts are up to us. And certainly the messaging that other people give to us is, is out of our control. But the interpretation of the thought, the interpretation of the message, I think there's great power there. And for people that are listening to this, perhaps Mario said something today that got you thinking. Um, but once again, don't get it twisted. It's your interpretation of what he is saying. It's your decision to pick up the headphones and listen to this podcast. Um, you know, I, I think too often we believe that others dictate our attitude um, and our interpretation. And I think one of the few things we actually do control is how we interpret the space between thoughts and thinking, right? So a thought comes in, if we can create space, then we can interpret something and think a certain way. Um, but, but the initial thought, the initial feeling, the initial emotion, um, you know, I, I don't think that's in our control. And I think unfortunately, a lot of us, myself included, often let that thought or that emotion dictate our action rather than create space to interpret that thought or that feeling uh, or that emotion and then go forward. So um, it's just cool to hear your story and hear, you know, how it's impacted you negatively and impacted you positively. And it's a good transition for us to talk about what you're doing now and, and how you had people telling you you were bad at math. And then you decide to take us to where, what you're, what you're up to now and, and how you got to this place, which you started to get into a little bit. Yeah. So the way I think about life is I, I sort of thinking about, think about it as a, as a road with several avenues and what those avenues are, are your, your spiritual, your mental and your physical, um, um, kind of deviations. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm on my deathbed, I want to know that I have 
pressed the envelope on each of these. I want to know that I've gone as far down each of these as I can. So that's why going towards those difficult things is important to me. Going towards, you know, the SEAL training, it's the hardest in the world. Going towards, for me, for the spiritual aspect is the study of, uh, of the universe and the skies and the stars and, and understanding that we are, there's a connection there. Now, the mental, one of the mental most difficult things, I think, is mathematics and physics, especially. This, for me, has always been a dark, looming cloud that has, that has sort of followed me my whole life. It, it, it cast its shadow on me. I was scared of it. I was afraid of it. And, and uh, so I, I you know, kept it at a distance because you know, I had a lot, like I said earlier, I allowed words of a relative to, to make me believe that I was bad at math. And you know, I had fallen into that trap. Um, also I had no one to prove me otherwise. No one in my family has a college degree. Few have, uh, less than a few have high school degrees. Most didn't even go to middle school. Um, but you know, I needed to go down that Avenue, that last final at one of the last final avenues I have to go down. So having identified that prior cause in my life where, which was my relative telling me that, that I was, you know, we were all bad. I identified that's the origin of this belief. I I took it upon myself to go back and begin again to try to shift that that deviation back to a normal path in which I am good at math. So what I did was I I set out to prove that I that I was good at it, that I that I could do it. Not necessarily that I'm good at it because math is still pretty difficult, but that I wasn't that it wasn't a crippling uh uh it wasn't crippling to me that it didn't just like completely consume me and, and I wasn't scared of it anymore. So uh, I started studying math and I'll tell you, I, I began the study with what a class was called math 38, which is like this pre-algebra and study skills. It was the, it was like seventh grade math. I, I kid you not. And so what I did was I, I, with all my whiteboards on my walls, I bought a glass desk and I took white paperboard and I taped it to the bottom of the desk and I used uh, dry erase markers and I opened the book to page one, chapter one, and just started reading and practicing every problem, every problem. That way, when I got tired, I would stand up and go to the whiteboard and then I would switch from there and I just wouldn't give up, wouldn't give up. And in fact, what I, a few of the things that I did was I, I printed out the Ivy League flags and NASA flag and I hung them all up all over my wall. So to set me as a reminder um, that I could, I could go this is, these are my goals and I got to just, I got to keep going. Don't give up. Don't quit. Um, in fact, one of the other things that I used, that I used to do was, uh, when I was in eighth grade, I dated this girl who, who I was infatuated with and she was this just beautiful cellist. She could play the cello like, like no other. And her mom ended up picking me up one day for a, for a, an eighth grade or seventh grade dinner dance. And she saw that I lived in the hood and she was from a really wealthy family and demanded her that she break up with me because I wasn't quote American enough for her. Mm. So, so one of the things I would do, I've done in the past in like years, years past before I got into the school is I would find her playing, um, her, her, some of her recordings of, of her playing the cello. And I would play them in the background as motivation when I got tired to keep going. Cause, cause like I said before, pain and hurt is, is a motivator, even though this is years, decades later, it's still a good motivator to prove that I am, more American, you know, I am American, I'm America itself. Um, but, and going back to math, um, I wanted to go back and, and, and re-scratch that and prove to myself. And, and because it's difficult, I had to do it. So, you know, years later, uh, here I am studying. I finally, I, I, 
I meet that goal. I get accepted into the Ivy leagues. Uh, I'm at school and today I'm three classes. I graduate in May. I walk in May with this degree in pure mathematics with a concentration in like number theory. Um, and, and a lot of, you know, astronomy classes and physics also, um, to boot, you know? So, so here I am again, it's just a, a testament that we shouldn't, we shouldn't, um, let ourselves believe those, those things about us that, that we believe are weaknesses. It, it really just takes patience and a lot of practice and patience and more practice for something like math to, uh, to really nail down. And, and I wanted to be, and the, one of the main reasons why I want to do this and, and achieve this is because I am the first person in my family that, that's going to achieve this uh, degree. And I want to set a new standard. I want to set the bar, raise the bar. I want to create a benchmark for which future generations of my lineage and my nephews, and they can see that and say, look, now we can no longer say we're bad at math. Look, our uncle or, or my dad, my future kids will be like, he's got a degree in mathematics from an Ivy League. Uh, it's there. The, the precedent has been set and, and there is no going back now. What would 14-year-old say uh, to you right now? 14-year-old you say to you right now? 14-year-old me would, I mean, he, he would be probably, I don't know, nervous because I was you know, a seal, everything I want to do. I would never expect it at 14 that I would be doing this, that I would be here. In fact, I wouldn't have expected to be an Ivy League uh, you know, graduate five years ago, that was, I didn't, you know, this is still kind of new to me. And, and uh, yeah, so I think, I don't know, he'd probably be pretty stoked. <laughs> and where, where will 50 year old version of you be? Um, That is, that is out there, you know, 50 year old me will definitely be still doing like some bodybuilding, lifting competition competitions may hopefully still able to train jujitsu and, and achieving new goals. You know, uh, hopefully I, I'm always, I always need kind of goals and, and things off in the distance for me. Um, uh, running races again, hopefully I, I would like to, I would like to ideally, you know, finish another degree in, in some mechanical or, uh, aeronautical engineering, um, astronomics, um, perhaps. And, astronautics and, and, you know, eventually apply to the astronaut program. I would love to go work for NASA. I would love to go be the fourth frogman in space. That's, that's a, you know, a goal that I, that I, that I have that's down the line. Um, unfortunately I just got beat out for that third spot because Johnny Kim, uh, got it. He's in astronaut school right now. He'll be done in about a year and a half and ready to go up into low earth orbit. So, uh, you know, I, I like to have many, many goals, I like to have, uh, like Tim Ferriss once, uh, called it a, uh, not almost, uh, I actually, I forget what he called it, but it's almost like a plurality of goals. That way, if you're, if you're struggling with your job, if you're, if you're hurting, if things are going bad, you still have other goals to, you can achieve to kind of elevate the general attitude. You, you have a terrible day at work. Nothing's going right. Well, guess what? I know a new arm lock that I'm going to go try at jujitsu tonight that I'm really excited, or I have a new personal record with squats or, or something I have a new. So I obviously I like to have many little different things in the event that we experience these low points because we all do, we all do, and we all will experience it. But I think if we have multiple goals in our lives, we can, uh, we can maintain an even keel. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing all the different goals that you achieve, all the things that you don't achieve, but learn along the way. Um, and look forward to a couple more beers in New York the next time um, we're there or lunch or coffee or whatever the heck you want to do. 
Um, and I just want to give you a platform next to promote whatever it is that you want to promote. So obviously give us your Instagram handle, um, but also anything else that you're involved with or uh, that you would like to share with the world. So I'll just give you the floor. Sure. My, uh, my Instagram can be found. Actually, I have two Instagram accounts. One of them is Mario Romero 186. Uh, that's more of my personal one. I share, I share pictures. And like we were talking about earlier, um, I do use the seal pictures as a way of, of kind of wrapping people in because they initially like the pictures though. I, I, I tend to be a little sneaky and, and try to, uh, I might, might give away my hand right here, but I try to inject critical thinking in, into a, a demographic that may perhaps not, you know, actively go out and seek, um, scientific literacy and, and, and the realization that it's, that it's really neat. It's really cool to be passionate about whatever geeky thing you're passionate about. I like, I'm this former seal, but I love astronomy. I love science and I geek out about this stuff. And I think it's really cool and it's important to, to dive into these things and, and be loud about it. Be proud about your geekiness. Um, my other, um, Instagram account is actually astronomic wonders, which is all astronomy stuff, um, astrophotography, astronomy related and, and other science stuff. Um, as far as, uh, as far as foundations, I, I, I like, although I'm not a part of one more wave, one more wave is, is a couple of friends of mine for, uh, former seals and some active that, um, that put together like surfboard, surfing equipment, boards, uh, uh wetsuits, and other equipment for, for injured and wounded vets that may be missing limbs or whatever. And they provide, um, they provide, um, some, some actual, uh, surfing pros that come out and actually do, uh, do, do surfing lessons for, for, for some of these wounded vets, um, injured vets, vets with PTSD. I think the philosophy behind one more wave is awesome. It's the whole idea is just fascinating that you should, you should always just just wait and catch one more wave. You know, you should just one more wave, one more wave. You hang on. Even if you feel like you're like feeling down and, and you're because of your wounds and whatnot or any PTSD, just there's always that one more wave you can catch. And I, I find that this, this organization is doing a lot of good. So you can look them up. They're on one more wave uh, on Instagram and they also have a website. They have shirts and, and clothing and gear and stuff. And all this, all this funding provides for, uh, for these vets, some, some surfing gear. Very cool. And I think back to when you said one more meal, one more meal, like just, you know, keep living your life sort of, I like to use the phrase, be where your feet are, like, just keep being where your feet are. Let's, let's keep going forward and uh, let's keep becoming while also being, um, for those that want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Brian Levinson and then on Instagram, which I'm going to have to use uh, some insight from Mario about how to do that. Cause I'm still learning it's <sighs> intentional underscore performers. And then our website is intentionalperformers.com. Uh, and before we go, Mario, I just want to thank you. Uh, the obvious thanks is, is for your service, which is something hopefully you hear all the time. Um, I said earlier, you know, I, I think I was brought up with the idea like, Hey, you don't, have to serve because of your ear and uh, for you to go toward that light, um, which also had plenty of darkness uh, is, is brave and it's courage. And uh, you should feel a sense of fulfillment knowing that uh, you helped people like me and people in our country um, live safely and, and freely. And um, I, I think we shouldn't take it lightly. Um, but I also want to thank you because I think you're the definition of a blender and I use the word blender to describe my philosophy. Um, so I think any time, if, you know, the old saying, 
too much of anything is a bad thing. Uh, we all know, but I also think nothing of something is also a bad thing. Yeah. So um, I, I love how you blend uh, your experience with the seals, your experience at Columbia, your experience growing up, um, your experience as an athlete, and you blend all of those things, your experience in your religion, um, and you blend those things to continuously evolve and become and be. Um, and I think we should all strive to constantly blend uh, our identities. I don't think any of us are one thing. Um, I don't think we're one, we are, our race doesn't define us, our ethnicity, our sexuality, um, our education. I think if we can blend different things and learn from different people, uh, that's what's going to help us grow and, and become. So I want to thank you because I think you represent that uh, as much as anyone I've talked to. And uh, I just want to give you props for constantly blending, constantly evolving, uh, and constantly dreaming. Um, for me, the big takeaway uh, will be the idea of that cube and, and shaving off the angles and, and creating a ball and then having goalposts that we all want to go toward. And hopefully people that are listening to this can think about their cube and what they can do. I know I will. And also having, having goalposts in mind. And I think uh, having a vision is, is also very important. So I'm excited to see your vision. Uh, this has been a fun conversation. I enjoyed our conversation when the mics were off just as much. Uh, and hopefully we'll have more conversations when the microphones are off. But I want to thank you for being vulnerable enough to uh, talk with the microphones on and uh, look forward to many more conversations and, and early congratulations on, on your graduation. And I'm sure that will be one of those other snapshot memories that you have uh, in, in your database. And I look forward to seeing a picture on Instagram and, and seeing that as well. Cool. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. All right, man. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The way I think about it is I, I'll see a, a goal in the distance, right? And I have a, because I have a, like more of an imaginative mind, I have a goal in the distance and I have a, a cube that I need to get to that point out in the distance. And the best way to do that is to begin shaving and cutting the edges of those cubes. And what those edges are, are, are distractions in life. They are things that will stop you and so you start shaving down all those things until your cube becomes a smooth rolling ball and it's smooth and it rolls with limited friction to that goal and that's for every single goal in life you look at okay i want to i want to get into like i used it for for one of these ivy league universities i'm like okay well what is what are these distractions there's social media and facebook okay gone deactivating Okay, what else? It's like, oh, all right, well, I get involved. I go to the bar and I drink. Okay, not drinking for two years. I don't hang out with these people who are distractions. I, these, are, these are all edges on this, on this cube that I shave off so that I can turn it, that goal, to, I can turn that effort into a smooth rolling ball to get me to that, to that goal. 